Howdy, fellow Taptralians, and in particular, Tapped Innards. This is the Tapped In Podcast, a production of Bellingham Tap Trail. Tapped In covers the people, news, and events in and around the Bellingham craft beer scene. Thanks for joining us today for episode four. I'm Dave Morales, and I'll be your host, where we chat with North Corner's Robert Arzu. I want to address a couple of things and do a little housekeeping before we get started today. This is my fourth installment of this podcast, and I've learned a few things. The chat you'll hear today taught me that a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't always cut it. I had the realization that the majority of my standard questions were aimed to pro-brewers and that most listeners, and not all guests, are pro-brewers. You will hear shortly that realization happen in real time. The truth is that I'm winging it in an organized manner each time I do this. I'm always trying to improve, and so I put it to you, Tap Ennards. What would you like to hear? Any questions you'd like me to ask my guests, all of whom are brewers in some capacity? Do you like the rapid-fire, favorite hop, grain, yeast, etc. questions? I'll work on changing things up a bit, but honestly, this is your podcast. So please give us feedback and let us know what you'd like to hear and who you'd like me to sit down with. We're concentrating on local for now, but with your help spreading the gospel of Tapped In and your continued support, someday we'll branch out and spread our wings. We really didn't have any idea how this would be received, but you seem to like it, and we sincerely thank you for that. And we have a sponsor. Tapped In is brought to you by Hoppus Real Estate, specializing in Whatcom's core neighborhoods, understanding the wants and fulfilling the needs with community, craft, and comfort in mind. Hoppus Real Estate is located at 1012 DuPont Street, across from the Lettered Streets Coffee House, and you can find them on Facebook and Instagram. So thanks to Joe for sponsoring this podcast. All right, to the business at hand. Today's guest is Robert Arzu, owner of North Corner Brewing Supply, and he's been operating quietly in the background of the local brewing scene for almost 20 years, shelling out knowledge, equipment, and ingredients to brewers, vintners, and more recently, distillers. It was important for me to have him on as I feel he's just as important a force in the scene as anyone. But hey, enough of my yakking. What do you say? Let's boogie. So welcome. Well, thank you. And thanks for coming. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I feel honored. Of course. I mean, it's all about, you know, basically what it has in this iteration. It's just talking to people in the Bellingham beer scene for right now. Um, You know, I figured it would be good to just talk to people that helped create the scene first, you know, and I feel that you're definitely one of those people. Um, I guess we should also say that you're Robert Arzu. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How about I'll say I'm Robert Arzu. Okay. That's uh, great. I own a little place called North Corner Brewing Supply. And uh, I started this in about 1998. And uh, that's where we're starting, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's right when I moved to town. I remember you had the the little house just right down the street from your house. That's right. And uh, Yeah, so the timing there is is an important key in because um, Boundary Bay had basically just opened. So our first sort of big brewery. Now, it's not the first brewery in Bellingham by any means. So if we go way back in history, we've we've got Orchard Street Brewing, Mm-hmm. We've got the brewery that was on Cornwall. Uh, that was Bellingham Bay Brewery, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. Uh, we had a U-Brew place at the Orchard Space. So there were weird little... Yeah, which I had forgotten about. Jorgensen weird, mentioned that too. Weird yeah. little fringy things. There was Bullies mm-hmm. uh, that went out of business right. um, a, a year or so before. And uh, in Fairhaven. So that was a bar that also had adjunct brewing supplies. Right. Okay. So, so, so this is... This is where we're at circa, you know, 1998. There's no homebrew shop in Bellingham proper. Mm-hmm. There's Bernie out in Linden right, selling right. little stuff out of his tiny little house. There's the little shoebox size brew shop in Anacortes. Oh, yeah. Okay. That one. Right. Yeah. Right. Northwest Brewer Supply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still is doing well. Trevor, Northwest. Um, and you basically have Boundary Bay opening up and I'm... So for me, that was sort of a, a kicker. That was that was kind of a harbinger of a new generation of people that would be kind of into beer, mm-hmm. you know. And and Boundary was kind of going to change the game, as far as I could tell. Yeah. So, uh, and I I purchased things from Boundary. I literally like asked Howard Kuhn to sell me a bag of two row because I couldn't get one locally. So <laughs> yeah, it was sort of goofy. So anyway, the timing of, you were of like, that Wait a did matter, <laughs> um, and it was it was sort of something that seemed to be a no brainer. Um, so uh, that coupled with you know my inability to actually work for anybody else and your thirst for beer, and yes, and uh, me being a social science kind of guy realizing that until some geezer dies at the community college, I'm never going to get a job. So (laughs) I kind of decided to create my own job. I mean, it was a culmination of events, but, um, you know, we all go through college thinking, Oh, it'll be great. You just do whatever you want to do. And being in Bellingham is pretty tough game as you well know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I basically, decided to make my own job and so i think it was a little forward in that sense but it was mostly opportunistic i was in the right place at the right time yeah and i think you were smart about it and that you started small and just let I it did. grow totally organically small. yeah so my my leveraged output to open that first store was basically like thirteen thousand dollars on a credit card yeah <laughs> and i was open <laughs> yeah so it's pretty low risk in the yeah. big scheme of things so, you know, we didn't make much money, um, but it was fairly cash neutral and it could, I could see the sustainability mm-hmm. and I could see the growth happening. Yeah. So. And like you were saying, right place, right time, homebrewing That's was right. starting to, yeah, I remember the first iteration of the homebrew club. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it seemed like there was a pretty hardcore group, yeah. you know, some of whom, you know, went pro, um. And some of whom I suppose no, are still... A, that st- could be a sidebar of, you know, name all the people that have kind of sort of bounced through the shop that are now sort of players. It's kind of fun. Yeah. It's not because I'm some genius that fostered them. They they were just here, but it's cool to have associated with those people. And yeah. they're serious brewers now. Yeah, I can think of quite a few. I know. Actually. I know. Yeah. And it's great. It's not because, you know, I did anything other than provide a sort of a a place, a vehicle for those guys to keep brewing and to do their stuff. And I got to know them on a first name basis. Yeah. And before there were a bunch of breweries in town, it was a place where you could go, you could work. It was super chill. You get to talk beer 
all day long. That's right. You get, you have access to all the stuff, you know, and, uh, it still boggles my mind how, um, how much opportunity the home brewer has now you know, to be able to get the exact same things that the big boys can get. And by big boys, I mean, you know, actual professional breweries, mm-hmm. not Budweiser and stuff. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And yeah. how many talk yeasts? about, oh, sorry to interrupt you. There. No, no, I was just going to say, how many yeasts could you get you know, 10 right. years ago? How many right. um, grains could you get? Yeah. It's and just we, we gotten talk crazy. About the state of the hobby in general and how it's a very different animal than it was, you know, 25 years ago or whatnot, when, you know, if you could make a beer, that was an accomplishment. Now you can make a focused, specific, hyper-specific style that you barrel age with a yeast culture that you slanted and grew. I mean, we're mm-hmm. talking about put a in whole your, nother level of sophistication. Yeah, put in your stainless conicle that that's has right. glycol, you know, exactly. tubes around and it. That's, that's cool. There's still always a do-it-yourself component, which is fine. And, uh, and I have this conversation with brewers a lot, which is, you know what, you could have a really fancy pot and it's not guaranteeing that it's going to make you a good meal at home. You actually have to know what the food that goes into that pot does. But you know, you have a lot of tools at your disposal now that were pretty much do it yourself only back in the day. Like when we started. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. When did you start homebrewing? What, what got you, you know, what gave you the bug? You'll like this. I (laughs) traded an outboard for brewing supplies. (laughs) And since you know me and you know, I'm a boat nerd. I think that's, uh, that's pretty funny. Um, I traded a buddy, an outboard motor for a whole box of brewing equipment. And I started brewing about 95. Five, and was this down in Palm Springs or was this, no, uh, you would no, have been this up. was in between my transition from college in Olympia, uh, up to Bellingham. Mm-hmm. So when my wife, Nana got a teaching, uh, got accepted to the teaching program at Bellingham for her master's, um, I sort of tagged along and uh, right about then I picked up some brewing equipment and I started brewing, uh, so I was in Bellingham and I was starting the first phase of kind of real brewing. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And it <clears> was you fairly through, random. It did you go through a, the whole extract thing or did you just I jump did. right in? And No, I, I brewed for probably six or eight months with malt extracts. Um, I purchased stuff from Liberty Malt where you worked, mm-hmm. uh, from the shop in Anacortes, from Homebrew Heaven in Everett and hauled it back up to Bellingham. <laughs> and then I hit that kind of tipping point that I think separates the beginner intermediate brewer from like the pretty serious good long-term brewer, which was transitioning to all grain brewing and having a keg system. Mm-hmm. And once those two steps happened, it was like, that was it. We're yeah. done. We're, we're never going back. We're making commercial quality beer yeah. and we're making yeah. it at home and we're pouring it on tap. And so that was, that was the big turning point. It was like, this is pretty amazing. Like yeah. this isn't a lot of work and this is good. So. Yeah. It's no more work than just cooking nice meals all the time. Right. You know. And at that point, yeah, I was pretty hooked in and, and then it was this funny conundrum of like, there's not a place in Bellingham that like sells this stuff. And I could name 50 people off the top of my head who are sort of fairly accomplished brewers. Yeah. And, and would like, like a place to be able to do I that. I was like, huh, ding, 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 ding. I think <laughs> I can connect the dots here. Mm-hmm. So yes. Yeah, so that, that's sort of the trajectory. Uh, I 
did not have like a savvy education in beer brewing. I grew up with, you know, Jesus parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't drink good beer till probably fairly late in college. Yeah. Seriously, a good beer for me would have been like, you know, the beginning of college having a Pete's Wicked Ale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it was like <laughs> classic dark, you know, Michelob That's classic right. dark and, and then Shiner Bach. Was uh, the, was so the I'm not one. some highbrow beer guy. I literally lapsed into this and it, you know, the the DIY, you know, do you do it yourself stuff about it was, was fun. And, yeah, well, you're a tinkerer. And <laughs> of course, and... Yeah, it was it was interesting. Yeah. So that's one thing that I, I tend to kind of lump brewers into is not only being tinkerers and uh, do-it-yourselfers, but being kind of process and detail-oriented and, okay. and not necessarily in everything in life, but in my normal life, I'm a recovered slob that still tends to be that way. I'm lazy. And, but when I'm brewing, I'm on point, super type A. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's not until I'm done. It's like, okay, I, I, you know, today I brewed today. I didn't eat all day. I didn't even drink water. I didn't do anything. I was just, I was brewing and I was focused on it. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I just tend to be that way. And I see that trait in a lot of other brewers. And I was just wondering mm-hmm. if, if, what your thoughts are on that. And would you agree or do you think it's something else or mm-hmm. that's that's an interesting question because i try to tell folks you know you don't have to be a chemist you don't have to be a physicist to make good beer you, you just have to understand what good ingredients are because a lot of brewers come into my shop and they're all intimidated because they read the chapter on ph and water chemistry mm-hmm. and they're like i don't know what the hell i just want to make good beer right right right, right. and, and you know, your grandmother's pork chop recipe didn't rely on her being a chemist or a physicist to make a good pork chop mm-hmm. or whatever. So, so I, I try to, I try to use that, you know, you get your hands around the ingredients and you know what they do and you can learn how to do this. Yeah. Um, See, that's interesting because you're coming at it from more of an educator point of right. view because you run the homebrew shop and people come to you for, for right. answers and you know, you get all kinds of beginners. Um, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I could totally see how people are freaked out and your job is to just say, you know what? Just yeah, read the and instructions. I'm walking, this, I'm walking this line between saying, no, you can't make every conceivable German beer in the world. And mm-hmm. yes, you can make a lot of good beers if you take the time and the energy to do right. it. And right. I brew on a sliding scale of possibilities. Some beers I'm super anal about. I want them to hit the metrics and other beers I can close my eyes because I've done them a hundred times. Mm-hmm. So, so that's how beer. I yeah. personally brew. Mm-hmm. So if I'm exploring a new style, I'll be very attentive and do it. And if I'm like, I want a beer around because I'm having a party in a couple yeah. months, I have these I things lying around. I'm going to make a beer with it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause I guess I was coming, I was talking more about people that are already in deep, you know, like right. the committed brewers, you yeah. know, not professional brewers necessarily, but, sure. but the people that you see week in and week out and they have their systems and they're dialed in. Well, but yeah, that's interesting. You know, just, um, 
what I see at my shop is this kind of demographic range of customers. They could be the crazy stoner hippie and they can be the engineer type with their spreadsheet open on their laptop. And that's what I see. And these are like very different people that approach beer brewing in very different ways. True. Yeah. And that's what's cool about my shop is I, I get to interact with these people who do this on all kinds of levels. And I'm not saying one is more efficient than the other. They're mm -hmm. just, this is, this is how they do stuff. So it's yeah. all right. Yeah. Well, I remember Chuck, uh, long blonde hair, Chuck. Uh -huh. uh, I remember he just is, you know, the throw it in a pot, exactly. make beer, you know, kind of stuff. That's right. And, uh, and then I have another friend that just makes his IPA and that's uh -huh. the only thing that he makes. That's right. And then you get, you know, dorks like mm -hmm. me and mm -hmm. Chris and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and what you might look at it in terms of other hobbies, like, you know, I fly fish and I, I'm a gardener, but I'm actually a terrible gardener. Mm -hmm. So like when customers come in and they're like, I can't do this beer, I'm having problems. I'm like, that's me as a gardener. I'm a hack gardener, mm -hmm. but I like to garden. Mm -hmm. I yeah. want to be a gardener. Yeah. So this is how I can interface with people. I can say, I get it. You know, yeah, you should be able to do that, but you need to maybe work on this and this and this. Right. And it's a hobby and you need to commit the time and the resources to it. So it's, <laughs> that's fair enough. Yeah, it, it all... Yeah, it all works it, out. It's like when you cook dinner, do you want to make top ramen or do you want to make a good meal? And if, you know, if you come into my shop and you say, well, I just want to make top ramen, I'm like, well, why bother? You could do so much more than that. And this is the ongoing dilemma. Yeah. Um, you, this is the third time that you've come in here. Do you really want to make another thing <laughs> of right. top ramen? Because you could, you could do something else. And, and it's fine. It's food. It works. But... Maybe we want to do something more interesting. Then. Right, right. Do you remember your first batch of beer? Oh, yes. It was terrible. <laughs> was it? It was from two anonymous cans of syrup. Uh, I think it was John Bull extract. You remember oh, John, John Bull? Bull. Yep. And uh, I don't think there were any hops because it was just the hops that were implicit to the syrup. Well, most of the, a lot of those um, cans, <clears throat> it, you could get the hopped syrup. Right. Or you could get it with... It had a little bag of hops on it that was probably, yeah. you know, three years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but probably what was successful is that it wasn't, like, blowing up or damaged or terrible. So the fact that it was <laughs> semi-palatable mm -hmm. meant that it was a success. Yeah, yeah. It was um, something that you made that was drinkable. That's right. That's right. And then it goes up from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you share it with... Uh, with anybody or were you in no, a position to really I, do no, that? No, 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 yeah. no. I was just like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I will give a little shout out to Papazian because that was my reference book. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, I also had the Miller book and they were both, they were both really good books. Miller being Dave Miller. book had the little, he had the little psychic kind of massaging. He's like, I know where you're at. I know you're, don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. and the whole relax, the don't worry. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and um, I'm going to give him credit for that because yeah. that's a legitimate perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at that time in that place where we didn't have the same amount of information that we have today. Right. And yeah, I, think, I didn't have any friends that were brewers, really. I had, yeah. Yeah, I knew some people that had brewed beer, but they weren't brewers. And yeah. I got that book and I remember being confused forever. I did not understand the concept of 
a mash tun and a false yeah, bottom. Sure. I just had, I was like, what does that mean? Yep. <laughs> a, a metaphor I use when I'm ex- talking to people and I'm trying to explain the brewing process. I'm like, if you try to explain someone how to scramble an egg, it would sound so ridiculous and so out of context if you wrote it down as a paragraph versus mm-hmm. saying this is what happens when you scramble an egg. Yeah. The enzymes congeal and the proteins, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. If you say you scramble an egg, people kind of get it. And yeah. That's how the brewing process can be. Yeah. Uh, you had mentioned <clears throat> that you were uh, not an early connoisseur of beer, much like myself. I mean, I grew up with Coors in the fridge, um, you know, Miller Lite later. And it wasn't until I was in uh, late high school, early college, you know, like I said, I, you know, Michelob Classic Dark was, we thought we were just the fanciest people on earth. And sure. then Shinerbot came out right as I turned 21, pretty much. What, uh, do you remember the very first beer that you ever had? No, that would have been the classic high school party beer. Yeah. It didn't fucking matter. It was just a fucking <laughs> right. beer. Yeah. Or a wine cooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. That's That's been a recurring theme since we're all child <laughs> children of the 80s generally. <laughs> no. Bartles it, and James. It wouldn't matter whatsoever. Yeah. Do you remember the beer that actually flipped the switch where you tried the beer and you and that was the one where you were like, I need to figure out how to do this. Or was it more hmm. of a gradual thing? Yeah, I think it was more gradual. So I'm, I'm going to college at Evergreen and uh, the low tier, the cutoff beer, the beer that you like, you know, you're going to have. And if somebody gets the beer below that, you're like, no, please, for Christ's sake, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, becomes like Henry Weinhardt's. Mm-hmm. I think that's the cutoff beer. Okay. Don't get right. a beer worse than that. Yeah. Right, uh-huh. <laughs> a little pretty low bar here, yeah, and uh, and then it just keeps creeping up slowly and slowly. Yeah, I think that Henry Weinhardt's would probably be an equivalent to the yeah. Michelob Classic Dark. I didn't, I didn't have Weinhardt's. Yeah, I think um, it was a little more Texas, of a northwesty but, thing. Mm, oh right. yeah, definitely. Is Port- yeah. Portland right or Olympia? No, well, I don't yeah. know. See, I don't even know. We toured the Oli Brewery in Olympia pretty much a couple years before it folded hmm. and that was kind of fun yeah i wanted to do that it was vaguely reminiscent of the simpsons episode where they pour the three beers out of the same spigot and they call it duff light and duff dry and duff dark mm-hmm. it's kind of all the same beer yeah yeah <laughs> but i have a poster of a uh, hundred years of rainier yeah. and they've got the rainier dark rainier light right. and right. then rainier something it was the third yeah. one as well yeah. Howard would remember. That's right. Because I remember he told me he used to drink mm-hmm. a lot of those. I'm going to get him on here as well. I'm going to nail him down at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as a tangent, while we're talking about Howard Kuhn, since he was the first brewer at Boundary and I mm-hmm. was actively brewing and I was basically begging him to sell me bags of two row mm-hmm. he was influential. He basically said, yeah, I think that sounds like a viable option. Like, mm-hmm. You know, and that's how I got to know Howard and who's still a very good friend of mine. So it was, it was a funny coincidence. Mm-hmm. You two, you, you and Howard were the first people that I knew That's right. in Bellingham. I think, I, I mean, I worked with Aaron, but I remember meeting and hanging out with you first. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have, uh, a favorite beer that you like to brew? I mean, you talked about how you approach it differently. I mean, is there one that you're always 
you always go back to and you're like, man, mm. it's been so long since I brewed this particular right. beer. And it doesn't have to be a yeah. particular beer, just a style that you No, no, no. I get that, that question pretty often. And no, I actually don't have a singular style. A, I have a sort of seasonal variability. So mm-hmm. what I think is an interesting beer will change with the seasons. Yeah, and, I'm with you on that. And then... I will have sort of the go-to beers and then I'll have the sort of exploratory beers where I'm like, I want to play with this. Um, I would say as I've aged, I've noted some pretty overt changes in how I perceive beer. I don't want crazy strong beers all the time, obviously. Mm -hmm. I don't want heavy dextrinous beers. So I mash drier. Cezanne kind of fits the bill a lot Mm -hmm. of the time. Um, I don't want beers with a ton of residual sweetness. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm not a Scotch ale fan or yeah. Like and that. it doesn't mean that I don't want a beer like that. It just means as a default choice, uh, I like a crisper, drier beer on par. Mm-hmm. Um, and industry wide, I think there's a lot of heavy bodied pale ales out there. Um, and I'm still kind of a classic Sierra Nevada fan of like, this is a dry, crisp, refreshing beer mm-hmm. um but I, you know it, it keeps changing over time um the eight percent ipa thing i think is getting a little old so. yeah one of my favorite things to happen in the industry in the last few years was when people started cutting crystal malts out of ipas and started yes. mashing at uh you know 148 Agreed. 149 instead of 153 yeah. 154 yeah. and uh late hop editions instead right. of you know more hop flavor and less bitterness. Yeah, agreed. And uh, Clarity Firm has been kind of an insightful adjunct that I've you know used over the last couple of years. Yeah, I've never used it, but I'm and it has it. the net effect of you know drying out beer, actually reducing the specific gravity slightly, and reducing gluten. Mm-hmm. So the gluten sensitive crowd is is using it, but minus that, you can get these incredibly crisp, dry beers with it. So it's to me, it's very interesting. Yeah, never thought about using it for that yeah. regard. I knew yeah. it was a gluten reducing. And then midsummer, you're already fighting high heat. This again, the saison thing has been kind of fun, and it's a voracious yeast, and then you get this dry, crisp, tart, drinkable beer, and this does not have to be a very complicated recipe. So, bunch of pills yeah. here. Yeah, but having said all that, no, I love porter. I'm a classic like. Uh, sharp roasty porter, uh, classic stouts, uh, they're great beers mm-hmm. and you know, you just shouldn't limit yourself to any one particular style. Um, probably I, if I have a bias as I get older, it's, you know, again, sort of lower body and alcohol. I really, I think you should be able to have three beers and not be plastered. Mm-hmm. So yeah. 1050 gravity 1055 yeah and, and i'll still make a strong beer in cellar agent as we did as yeah, with our joint we're gonna, project we're going to be doing that later yeah, i got a strong great. i got a strong kind of old stock kind of deal going on and yeah. i'll probably brew one more something like that yeah. but it's more important to me i'm i'm, I'm with you 100 percent. i um you know i like drinking beer and sometimes it bums me out you know i mean it's it's fun to feel funny every once in a while but um and it's fun to, you know, maybe feel really funny every once in a while. But, you know, sometimes I get bummed out if I'm like, I want to try all these beers and I'm going to have to pick and choose which ones I want to mm-hmm. to drink because I either am somewhere where I have to drive or somewhere where I have to go do something. 
you just have to pick and choose. Yep. And, yeah, there's a similar analog in red wine, which is oaky American fucking red wine, which is just this bomb. Mm-hmm. And we do that with hops and American pale. We just like overload it. So you take any underlying structure and it's just a wash. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anything, you should at least taste the elements in beer, malt, hops, yeast. you would be able to taste all of those in different styles. So mm-hmm. you have a very good vice beer it's all about the yeast you have a very good german beer it's all about them all you have a very good hoppy american beer it's all about the hops Mm -hmm. and and if you can't distinguish those things then yeah you're not really tasting the beer yeah so you mentioned wines that that's something that we didn't really um, Mm -hmm. touch on is that uh you went pro uh you weren't a brewing but you were making meads and Mm -hmm. making wine uh, during the the original iteration of honeymoon mm-hmm. uh, here in Bellingham, uh, is there anything that you want to address with that? Uh, just uh, any advice for people that are thinking of going pro, or uh, you know, that especially was... especially if they're in thinking more along the cider. Um, yeah, you know, so mead. that was a little. Yeah, that was an interesting model. Uh, you know, it's a very specific model we were doing. You know, cider mead wine so we Mm -hmm. were winery licensed yeah you couldn't brew beer we could not brew beer um and we're a little bit ahead of the game in terms of the cider revolution which is interesting because yes that that was a big deal and Mm -hmm. it still is in washington state and uh i think that's still happening um Mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of room for that to continue to develop and the wine thing is funny because there's still a lot of room for really good wine, um, given what's going on on the east side. So it's sort of the undercurrent at the shop is how much good wine can still be had. And, uh, you know, even us brokering fruit from the east side is kind of a big deal. Um, I'm really happy with the wines I'm able to make at home mm-hmm. just because I can drive a car six hours over to Prosser in Benton City and get this sort of world-class fruit. Yeah. And it's a pretty big deal. Um, so in the state of Washington, I think that is a huge deal. And if you've been following the sort of industrial wine press about global warming and orchards and vineyards in, you know, Napa where they're harvesting reds in August instead of September, I mean, we're going to be at the epicenter of this really amazing sort of wine culture. So that's a little bit of a tangent, I guess, what we're talking about, but it's it's kind of cool to have dabbled with it. So mm-hmm. that was a pretty niche model um, doing Honeymoon, and it was fun. It was super creative, um, but it was probably a little too finite. It needed to be a little broader at the time, hmm. would be what I would say. Nice. Yeah. Talking regionally, uh, what, uh, you know, because every region of, you know, just keep it, you know, in the United States, you know, has the beers, has a particular styles of beer. And I don't necessarily mean one style, but just more of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just an approach, I guess. Like when I think East Coast, well, now when people think East Coast, they tend to think the juicy IPA is the North, North, that's uh, a pretty Northeast. recent phenomenon. I th- it's a very recent phenomenon. And when I think East Coast beers, even Steph being from Michigan, so I'm there relatively often, uh, they are definitely more malt forward, you know, definitely sure. more crystal malt. Yeah. Um, and the sweeter, more dextrinous beers. It's almost 
more akin to British-style beers, I would say. You get to the south, and it tends to be more lawnmower beers of varying quality. Um, you know, a lot of Kolsch's, a lot of just lighter beers. And then, of course, you have the West Coast hot bombs, especially mm-hmm. down California. Sure. And uh, and up here. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, just regional, the state of beer, I guess, in various regions. And do you see any potential of where things are going in those yeah, regions that's no that's a that's a good question i feel like it has more of a cluster effect so what we see in san diego is like all the stone brewers that want to get out and do their own thing and what we see in bend is all the bend brewers that get out and do their own thing and then we see the woodenville and seattle and they're all kind of out there starting at a certain reference point and then saying, you know, I, I can do my own thing. And I, I see it as a cluster. Yeah. Okay. I don't, so I don't the know re- that, regional thing is more of a circumstance of a popular so. beer being the offspring. It could be a weird amalgamation of real estate and licensing and availability of hops and, uh, warehouse spaces. I don't, I don't think that some guy in the middle of Utah doesn't know what a good beer is. I think it's probably more of a random factor. Mm. Um, so you, you, as you would know, there's these hot spots where there's good beer, mm-hmm. and they're not based on any geography specific factor. They're just there's Portland, there's Denver, yeah. there's, there's Oklahoma now, there's Traverse City, there's <laughs> yeah. you know San Diego, Grand right? Rapids. Terrible water. Yeah. There's terrible water in San Diego. <laughs> Why would you brew there? Right. Yeah, it's a good point. So there's something else going on, which is there's an, you know, demand and people know what good beer is and, yeah. and are figuring out how to make it a happen. Metro population yeah. will be like, yeah, we, we're good. We're, we like this. Yeah. What's interesting, I think is that some of the historical places that were the birthplace of beer, like St. Louis or whatever, aren't keeping up the bar. Mm. There's not like 50 really cool breweries in St. Louis, Missouri. It's true. Right. Yeah. Do you think, that that is pressure from the the big boys or do you think it's apathy on the part of brewers just saying well i mean this is already here and we've got some good beer so far uh, i think it's probably the latter it's yeah. the demographics that people aren't out there looking for the latest coolest thing and mm-hmm. the young kids in portland are and they're going to pay for it right Jumping on that, what uh, what's your opinion on the current state of affairs in the brewing industry? Two breweries opening per day uh, this past year. Uh, I mean, it doesn't seem sustainable to me, and it seems like there is going to be at some point, I wouldn't call it a bubble, but I think at some point it's not going to be saturation. I think there's going to be a shakedown of overextension, and quality. Yeah. It's my two cents. I I could agree with you. However, if you know anything about pre-Prohibition America, there was basically a small brewery in any town that had more than, what, 20,000 people, Mm -hmm. 30,000 people. If you look at a map of Bavaria and you look at how many breweries there are, there's an insane amount of small breweries Mm -hmm. because they, a brewery, there is like a bakery or a pizza shop. It's just the place you go to get your beer. It's mm-hmm. a local place. Yeah. So if you think that we're actually just going back to what we once were rather than some new paradigm, 
that's how I would approach it. That's exactly how I'm approaching it. I'm 100% with you. And now, will, I, will I am, every brewery all... be a 10,000 hectoliter mega brewery? No, no, of course not. It, it can't be. be a seven barrel mom and pop little yeah. pissy place. That's that's my whole point. I yes. think overextension uh, is going to start biting some people. Yes, um, there will true. be there will be casualties, and there could be casualties of good breweries. Right. Um, you know, right. one you know the Commons in right. in Portland is that's right. No, I, I can see that happening. I think I think hyper local is the future. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. Um, keep it in house. Don't mm-hmm. worry about distribution. Just keep it simple. That's right. And and even with all this new fancy microbrewery shit, what are, what are we at? We're at 12, 10% of market share. Mm-hmm. Is it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That's about what I understand. I haven't looked since probably tw- 2015, yeah. but yeah, 10 to 12. Yeah. So, so 89% of America is still drinking Budweiser. So mm-hmm. you tell me that's a pretty wide open market, yeah. right? Yeah. No, agreed. Do you see, do you think that that's going to be a long-term trend? Like for 10 years, 20 years? A while. Yes. yes I, I think so. I do. I think so. But we're getting away from home brewing. We're just talking about brewing. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm a home brewer. <laughs> I'm not a commercial brewer. Come on, stay focused here. What uh, What do you think the future of homebrewing is then? Do you think it's going to be people being able to dork out, or do you think I, I kind of see it staying how it is now? You know, better ingredients, better equipment available, and that equipment will become cheaper as it's more mass produced. Yes. Um... I see it still being a hobby, but that it's less difficult to be a competent brewer. Um, right. We get better <clears throat> goods. We have better equipment. Um, it's better tools and better resources. That's right. And uh, a lot of good books. You know, just like you have somebody who's like way into barbecue and they have some crazy smoker grill barbecue that has a motorized pellet feeder uh, that's not unusual you wouldn't say wow what a crazy hobby you'd say yeah cool you like you like your barbecue and i'd be like yeah and i like my beer <laughs> and yeah. we make good beer so that's what i see happening it's still a hobby i don't think everybody in the world should not make their own beer it's it's a hobby mm-hmm. you got to be the right person with the right mindset so um it is a hobby do you think that as more people are doing it and as more breweries are opening up, are you concerned at all about the availability of some ingredients such as hops? No, it hasn't been a problem. Yeah. You don't think it's going to be? I think the issue is getting to that point where you're making, you know, a good enough product and what that learning curve is. Um, it, it, you know, I say this to customers at the shop. If you've never cooked a meal in your life and you're like, hey, I kind of want to cook provincial French cooking, there's not like a 10-second answer how to do that, right? You'd right. have to commit a lot of time and resources mm-hmm. and read some books and talk to some people and understand how food grows. That's a pretty big chore. Mm-hmm. So so to have the uh, the amazing sort of quality of beer and wine that we have and then have somebody waltz in off the street and say hey i want to do that can i do that in 10 minutes like no you you can't but you can if you commit to it in the long term Mm -hmm. and so that's where we're kind of managing expectation yeah that's that's what i love about brewing uh is that i know that i'll never be able to make 
all of the different kinds of beers that sure. I want to make, you know, because there's gajillions of permutations mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm and, having, I'm having fun looking back into history and some of the, you know, some of the crazier beers that, right. you know, have gone out of favor. That's right. Um, and when it's done well, a, a good homebrew is like a good tomato that you just pulled out of your garden and you walked into your house and you cut it and you ate it. And there's not a lot of chemicals. You made it. You're consuming it. You didn't go to the store to buy it. That's kind of how I like homebrew. It's mm-hmm. like it doesn't have to be mysterious and crazy. It's just organic and it's you know, implicit to your life. You didn't like go out of your way to spend 50 hours to do this. Yeah. And that's cool. Well, that was always what I used to, and I still do tell people, you know, it's like cooking, but you're making beer. That's right. Can you boil water? Can you read a thermometer? And can you pay attention to some simple details of sanitization? If you can do all that, there's no reason that in time you can't make beer that's just as good as beer X, you know, out there. Sure, sure. so do you have uh oh one thing that I that I forgot to ask you when I was asking about um about your favorite beers and stuff is uh I like to ask people what their guilty pleasure is mm. as far as drink goes. And it can be anything. Yeah. Um it doesn't have to be a beer. Um I mean especially with you, you know, cuz you make all kinds of different things. That's right. Hmm. Yeah, it might be the red wine after beer. Basically, I, I kind of have a, a, a semi-rigid rule about beer after work, before food. Love having my happy hour beer. Mm-hmm. And then eat dinner. And then I'm not having a beer after dinner. I'm having red wine. If I sneak in something after that, like a little shot of bourbon or whatever, then I might have to <laughs> sneak that in. Yeah, uh, But I really digestively speaking, don't want to have beer after a bunch of food. Yeah. So I kind of got that little routine going on. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's not a wine cooler, so that's good. <laughs> What's, uh, so these are the super just okay. quick, you know, just off the top of your head sure. um, questions. What's, uh, what's your favorite grain? Um, pretty partial to the British Pale and the Gambrinus ESB and the Belgian pale malts. Yeah. A little grassy, earthy quality that the domestic malts don't always capture. Mm-hmm. And just a little However, sweetness. Skagit Malt yeah. is doing a pretty good job domestically as a little niche here. I am excited. This, I'm going to be using theirs yes. the next time that I brew, for sure. Uh-huh. Uh, favorite hop? Uh, I'm a fan of a lot of the old school hops. I actually... I'm not a fan of a ton of the new school hops as their little marketing ploy, with the exception of a few that I think are able to capture a lot of attributes in terms of high alpha, low beta. Simcoe, I think, is a particularly clean hop. Mosaic is a particularly unique hop. Uh, Amarillo, I think, is overhyped. Uh, I think it got overused uh, a while ago. Yeah, I think it's kind of sharp. And uh, I really like some of the traditional hops, you know, mm-hmm. Cascade, Chinook, Centennial, Columbus, Magnum. Yeah, I love uh, Magnum. One of the most underutilized hops is Sterling. Sterling is my favorite uh, we've hop. We've talked about that's, that before. Yeah. Uh, it's a great hop. 
Uh, I'd just been playing around with Comet more, which mm. is another off the radar hop. Yeah, Brewers yeah, are yeah. just not onto it. So I remember Pyramid used to use Nugget as their right. measuring hop. So you put a trademark yeah. behind it, and everybody thinks it must be a way better hop. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> yeah. even hops like Northern Brewer um, are great. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. old school, old school harsh hops like Bullion yeah. and Galena, yeah, that we should retire those. I think their time is done. Mm-hmm. But there's a ton of hops that are kind of timeless, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've been around as long as they have. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the big juicy citrusy or not citrusy but um you know the ones that go into the juicy ipas you know like i like citra okay if used in moderation but right you know all of those um i made one beer with all of the new zealand hops right um i don't remember the the exact ones that did flight or pacifica or pacific gem yeah something like that exactly like just all the new zealand ones and it was 100 percent new zealand and it was I gave most of it away. Right. It was just too much. I couldn't deal with it. <laughs> and look at the metrics on that hop because the betas really climb. I mean, they go all over the place. I've seen I've seen domestic, you know, hops like a Cascade or something that has a beta at like 3.9 and then I've seen it have a beta of like 5.9 or something. I mean, they they go all over the place. So if that's really the metric for the harsher compound in the hop, you can look at it and you can analyze it and they go all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think most people just look at the alpha because that's what and what what's in all the books and what, right. how it's listed. You know? Yeah, yeah, and obviously specific to the beer style. If it's like an imperial stout, then yeah, of course it doesn't fucking matter. But mm-hmm. if it's some sort of light dry beer and you mm-hmm. got this crazy high beta hops all over the place, of course it will matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to put that in a pilsner. Uh, favorite yeast? That's always a hard um, one. Okay, I've got a few favorites. Um, 1762 Y Yeast, which mm-hmm. is the Abbey 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bella Saison, the dry Saison from Lalamont. So versatile. It's yeah. a, extremely versatile. Always love the neutral ale yeast um, in that whole family from US 05 to 1056 to BRY 97. All of those, of course, are great. Um, and. A little bit of the doughy estery character of the British yeast, 1098 or SO4. Uh, they're all interesting yeasts. Yeah, I hadn't brewed with a with an English yeast in quite a while, and I made yeah. that uh, that just ordinary bitter mm-hmm. for the first. I, I don't remember the last time I brewed it, and right. it was, if I do say so myself, it was outstanding. You know, well, it was just terrific, and it had 120 lava bond. Uh, crystal in it which Perfect. i'd never gone over 60 in years and years and years yeah yeah you know it's just no it's all about range it's just fun yeah you make different things don't ever make the same thing over mm-hmm. and over again and that's one of the beauties of being able to you, mm-hmm. as a home brewer you can do whatever you want you that's know right. you can bank your yeast you can hold on that's to right. it but you know five bucks you can get new yeast each time make something radically different the next time not uh, a not a luxury that every pro brewer has. That's true. That's true. <laughs> got to got to put it somewhere. So, a uh, couple last questions. Okay. Um, what is something that uh, that people wouldn't that deal with you every day or that see you a lot um, and see you as the face of North Corner Brewing Supply? What's something they wouldn't know about you? Well, it's funny how many people just assume that we're a beer specific place mm. rather than a 
rather open-ended fermentation supply. Like if I change my name to North Corner Fermentation Supply, maybe they wouldn't assume that. Right. But I will I will have a number of people come in and say, do you sell wine stuff? Which I, of course I do. Yeah. And then have you ever made wine? Which of course I have. Yeah. And uh, so that's always kind of funny. That probably is more of a marketing communication issue. But uh, I think it does harken to a sort of beer wine split because there are there are wine people in the world and there are beer people in the world. And there are people who make wine who will never want to make beer. And there are people who make beer and they'll never want to make wine. Mm-hmm. So there's a weird kind of artificial barrier between and those two. You still sell the, do you still sell uh, wine grapes and then I offer do. the people? I'm doing that yeah, right, right now, now yeah. even as we speak. <laughs> yeah, nice. We got our first reds in last weekend and oh, our yeah. final reds in about two weeks from now. Oh, okay. So yes, so um, and that's trips a big over deal. There. It's a weird, specific subset of my customers, but it's a it's a cool one. It's yeah. one that I really yeah. like. So it's like a business that happens like thirty days out of the year, and then it disappears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and and distilling stuff as well. Yes, those guys are all around all the time, which is cool. And that is a subset of my business that didn't used to exist. I've basically created out of thin air, and it is an interesting thing, and it's one of the last vestiges of the sort of prohibition America mm-hmm. that is Wild goofy frontier. and weird yeah. and semi-legal. And uh, if I sell you a still, I'm supposed to record your personal information mm-hmm. so that the federal government can monitor your use of your still and make sure that it's licensed. Mm-hmm. So they can uh, send you a cease and desist that's letter. That's right. And so it's a goofy thing. But yes, uh, if you look at who is who are North Corner customers, there's beer brewers, there's winemakers, there's distillers, there's cider makers, there's fruit wine makers, there's cheese makers, there's kombucha and pickled food makers. Yeah. There's people who are like survivalists that you should change the name place. to friend to all things fermented. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> There's people that need some sanitary vessel to put water in because they have a cabin in the boonies. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's a fun little subset. There's people who don't make beer at all and want to pour beer on draft at home with a keg system. Mm-hmm. And we sell stuff to them too. Yeah. And that's an important point to make uh, that I probably had never put the, the two points together is brewing skills are translatable into other things if you're into the survival thing and you want to or you want to make ethanol for your car those are skills that that you can get from the brewing well, that's industry. what they say i know a couple old <laughs> right. timers are like really we're just making ethanol for a car like wink wink nod yeah. nod yeah. yes it's like of course you are here's a bushel of corn but no i like that i like that about my customers i, I get these goofy types and that's yeah well, you don't just see the same no. type of people no, every day for sure yeah for sure they're they're very interesting totally Anything final that you'd like to add? Anything that I missed? Um, no, I, uh, I think you got it all. Um, I, I would say the state of the industry has just hit a weird point in the last year or so with the closure of a couple of major stores that you're aware of, right? Like homebrew heaven mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, regional, sort of larger stores that had put a lot out there on the online presence and they were really over leveraged and with the onslaught of 
you know, Amazon and InBev and all that, they're, yeah, they're the gone. Big online homebrew places. And it makes me have to focus in on what my local audience wants because I'm not going to compete with Amazon, obviously. Right. So it's, it's a serious issue. You know, I probably lost, you know, $80,000 of gross revenue in the last couple of years because of sales, because people can click online. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a reality. It's, it's important to remember, though, for those people that are prone to do that, is that you can special order almost anything. So just come in yeah, and ask. And I'm not saying that, oh, poor me. You know, No, I have to adapt. Yeah. I have to be an interesting right. place so for people. People might not be aware of that. That's true. Uh, but that's no different from us in our everyday lives going to bookstores or buying sporting goods or whatever. I mean... You know, all of us have to decide what the relevance of retail sales is in Mm -hmm. our lives. And if I can't provide anything more important than just a stupid piece of shit that you can click on and get, then no, I I Mm -hmm. don't deserve your money. But if I can actually answer your question or help you figure something out, then I do deserve it. That's the strength, I think, of of you being here is that you're here. And so people can go in and ask. I have to actually be able to help you. And so... And people have to value that. that. Just like I still go to Jaeger's to buy fishing stuff because I can talk to the guy and say, hey, we know how the silver's doing this year and what's what's the lure that, you know, you've been having good luck with. And Mm -hmm. I value that. And hardware sales where I can talk to someone who will actually answer my question Mm -hmm. and some prepubescent kid at Home Depot won't. Right. So I value that. I do too. And... Uh, but I'm also not living in a fairy tale either. So, uh, you know, it's just an interesting reality that we live in. And I I don't actually want to live in a world where everything is ordered and shows up in my doorstep from the mailman. I, I actually want to live in a world that I interact with people mm-hmm. and humans. So that's right. just my own little bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, I, it's important. You know, I live somewhere in between. Yeah, of um, course. You know, but... One of my biggest pet peeves is walking into a retail store where nobody knows what they're talking about. Sure. That's the surest way to lose my business. That's right. And again, I'm not trying to, to play, paint it as a completely black or white world, but it is like, what is the world that you want to live in in 10 years? And, you know, we will see a sort of a bleak, you know, brick and mortar world and... You know, everything will sort of show up at our house, apparently, magically, thanks to Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's a little weird. It's it's worth thinking about and worth valuing. Uh, I'm not trying to hearken to some, you know, 50s America. But, uh, <laughs> I think that didn't work the first time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just saying it's important, you know, as I'm a niche retailer that I should be able to provide something kind of interesting that, you know, Walmart doesn't do and Amazon doesn't do and that's my obligation to do yeah I think you fulfill it thank you for doing it well thanks well Robert thanks for coming I appreciate you taking out the time well and informing all of us two whole beers so yeah I know yeah that's probably the the soberest one that I've done (laughs) did I mention the first one was Jorgensen oh my gosh okay well thank you yeah yeah thanks for coming Uh, Robert Arzu owner operator of North Corner Brewing Supply uh, on Central Avenue go down and check it out Uh, Christmas presents (laughs) (laughs) cheers cheers
Okay. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Tapped In, brought to you by Hoppus Real Estate. Don't forget to let us know what you think of the podcast and write in with any suggestions or comments you may have. We appreciate hearing from you so that we can make the best product possible. It's also helpful to review us, like us, and tell your friends about us as you see fit. Global domination can only happen through you. Special thanks to Robert for taking the time to sit down with me. Tapped In is a production of Bellingham Tap Trail with content direction by Scott Pelton. I'm Dave Morales, and we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.